All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and uh, we will then uh, get into our study here this evening. Dear Lord, we thank you for uh, the fact that uh, you have a concern for all people, uh, not just the ones that are pleasant and easy, but uh, those that can be difficult and uh, hard to reach. And uh, we thank you for your grace that uh, does reach out and transform individuals, regenerating them and making them completely new. And so we're thankful to look at this book that's written to uh, an individual dealing with people who are uh, ones that uh, would be most difficult to deal with, but uh, yet you've uh, promised that uh, you can save them also. And so uh, help us to see that tonight, and this we pray in the name of Jesus the Savior. Amen. We're in the book of Titus. Uh, First two things there probably are not going to be anything unusual because you've seen those in the last uh, notes and sort of in the previous notes. Um, Written by Paul, uh, unique letters. This is uh, in our Bible put together as the pastoral epistles. Um, It is kind of um, probably in the right place. If you were thinking chronologically, these would have been the three last letters that Paul wrote. And so in the lines of Paul, they're in there, but it's not necessarily that they're there because the fact that they're the last ones, it's because they're the shortest ones. They kind of work from the longest of Paul's letters in your arrangements to the shortest. Uh, But uh, you have this letter, part of the pastoral epistles. Uh, You say, why why do we call them pastoral epistles? Because they're written to individuals that were pastors. As we mentioned, all of them start off with the uh, idea that when the Apostle Paul is uh, making his statement uh, to the people that he's writing to, he says, grace, mercy, and peace. Usually he says grace and peace. Uh, In this case, uh, to pastors, he's writing grace, mercy, and peace. And you say, what's mercy? Uh, That pastors need a lot of mercy because they make a lot of dumb mistakes. And uh, so there is an element there that there is a element that God can extend mercy. Uh, You don't get what you do deserve is what uh, mercy is. And so all of those given. And so it's kind of a unique way to start these letters off in comparison to all the other letters where it usually starts with a greeting of grace and peace. But uh, it is individual nature that uh, the Apostle Paul is shaping this letter to the individual, but it's that these letters have a lot of information on how the church runs. Uh, it gives us a lot of the information on what are the standards for people in leadership, uh, pastoral and deacon leadership, what's the responsibility of the church uh, and the pastor and in the world at large and how it functions. So these letters are good for us to be able to read, to open someone else's mail and find out what's uh, going on. The time that this is written, uh, these are all written after Paul's first imprisonment by these pastoral epistles. The one that we looked at last week was when Paul was in prison a second time and going to be executed at that point. That's the time he's going to be. But Titus is once again written in this time where he's been freed from prison. It seems to be before the persecution, after Rome burned and Nero officially made uh, Christianity an illegal religion uh, and started hauling people in, uh, that you have this time frame of about two to three years where the Apostle Paul is free, doing different things, going to different locations. Um, we're not really sure where he went. He went to Spain, we think, as far as what he was planning on doing. 
Uh, we know that he was in Crete because he says in this letter that he went to Crete, uh, had been on that island. Um, but somewhere in that time frame before uh, or Nero makes uh, Christianity a legal religion uh, in 64 AD that uh, we think that this letter was written. The person receiving this letter is uh, Titus. <clears throat> we have a lot about Titus. It's just spread all over the place. That's the, the problem uh, of trying to get this. It's not in one single location that you get information about him. Uh, we can at best tell that he is a Greek. Um, we know that. His name and everything else about him indicates the fact that he is a Greek uh, and some of the stories that are told. Uh, he's Greek, probably from Syrian Antioch. You go with Syrian Antioch. Antioch is the place where people were first called Christians. As you read the book in Acts, they spreading out from Jerusalem, and the first place they really come to outside of Israel uh, and the Jewish uh, land is Antioch, and this is where you have uh, the church explode. This is where Saul and Barnabas were sent out from as far as a church for missionaries. Uh, and so uh, they think that Titus is from there, uh, just reading some of the details of his life that we do have. The first real time that you see him is that he is, uh, it's recorded in Galatians, we wouldn't have it in the book of Acts, but in Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul gives indication that when he went to the Jerusalem council, he brought Titus with him. Got back from the first missionary journey, Apostle Paul's having to deal with issues that uh, people in Jerusalem are saying Gentiles can't be saved unless they become a Jew. You know, they, they can accept Christ, but they also have to take up Jewish characteristics. And uh, Titus was brought as a one example of a Gentile who's truly saved, and there's evidence of it, and his knowledge of doctrine, and the way that he lived his life, Paul brought him to the Jerusalem council to be an example that Gentiles could be saved. And so that says something about his testimony character that, you know, it was obvious uh, what he was like, who he was, that he could be brought uh, as Paul to be used in evidence. Uh, to display the fact that Gentiles could be saved. Uh, we do know that he traveled with Paul uh, in the third missionary journey. Uh, so the third time Paul is going around the Mediterranean, uh, Titus is with him as you look at some of the Acts accounts. Uh, we know from the letters to Corinth that he was sent multiple times to Corinth after Paul had left there. Uh, he was uh, sent there because Corinth had a lot of problems, so Titus is sent there. It just seemed to be Titus's life. Uh, he gets sent to the church at Corinth that has multiple problems, obvious problems, and then eventually he gets sent to the island of Crete, which was no picnic. Uh, it was not an island, uh, you know, holiday uh, that he was sent there. Uh, worked in the Isle of Crete sometime after his imprisonment, Paul's imprisonment. He left Titus there. Paul did. Uh, the churches started there. At the end of Paul's life, we know this. In that letter that we read last week of 2 Timothy that we went through, uh, you find out that you have uh, Titus who is with Paul, but he leaves Paul. Paul says, there's no one who stood with me at my first uh, appearance and trial. Uh, Demas forsake me, loving this present world. And then he says, certain people have gone out to different locations. And he said, Titus has gone to Dalmatia. It was, where's Dalmatia? I had to look this up myself. Um, Dalmatia is on the, uh, it's in present day what would be Croatia, Serbia, that area. Um, 
It's on the coastline just north of Albania, uh, that region uh, of Greece. Uh, but uh, he was sent to Dalmatia, and that's the last information that we have of what Titus is doing with his life. Um, we don't know if he gets back before Paul was executed, none of that. But what we're left with is the last statement we have about Titus is that he's been sent out by the Apostle Paul to go to Dalmatia uh, to minister there and uh, the churches that were there. There are two purposes for this book. Uh, First of all, uh, as you look through it, uh, Paul is going to remind Titus of the authority that he had. Uh, I will say this, it's going to be kind of unusual. Paul says, I want you to go through and uh, establish elders in the churches in the island of Crete. Now, some will take that and go, oh, that's why we should have things called bishops that go around and appointing people to different churches and saying, you're getting this guy as pastor, and you're getting this person as pastor, and you're getting this person as pastor. Okay, because in Titus, Paul goes, in the churches in Crete, you go and, and you appoint pastors. And I at least want to make sure that you understand that that is not what you're supposed to be doing when it comes to church establishment, okay? That type of church government, it's called an an Episcopal form of government in a church where you have a bishop or a cardinal or an archbishop and they appoint people to be in certain churches. You have to remember that Titus is under apostolic what? Authority. Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, who is a missionary, or is the apostle to the Gentiles, is saying, you go through and you get these people and you stick them in this church. There is an element of authority in being an apostle. Um, So, you know, this is not the normal pattern. But we do, thankfully, get the information that he says, here is what you ought to have in someone who is a pastor, an elder uh, in the church, and this is the qualifications, and we're going to get that. So understand that. But he does remind him, listen, you have authority. I've left you here with the responsibility. Uh, You take care of it. And it's an apostolic kind of authority that he has uh, in doing this uh, in his mission that's there. So he's organizing the churches. Uh, though some might not like that fact, uh, the, the creations, uh, uh, the people of Crete uh, would have a say in that. Secondly, Paul wanted Titus to teach several things. He was to teach sound doctrine to combat false teachers. Okay, you're going to find this idea of sound doctrine, sound doctrine, over and over again throughout this small letter. You got solid teaching, which you go, where's solid teaching based on? The Word of God. Okay, Uh, but sound doctrine, you need to do this because you're going to have false teachers that come in. And then he had to teach believers how to live in a way that did not look like the sinful culture of Crete, that you look different, that it can be seen by your life that something's gone on on the island of Crete. Uh, You're not to look at the sinful culture, but to live a life that magnified the gracious work of God. And we'll talk about the passage that is one that is oft repeated when it comes to the idea of what God's grace does for us. Um, And that they live this out. So, okay, set up elders, and then when you're doing that, you teach them sound doctrine, and that way they will live lives that are correct. And so, if you were to give a theme or what is emphasized in this letter it's just simply this sound doctrine and sober lives 
We'll talk about just, you know, somebody, people that are told to be sober in this letter, but understand when we're talking about sober here, it's not the emphasis on not being drunk. When you see this idea of uh, being sober in the scriptures, it's the idea of knowing uh, how far to go in something and not to go a step further. What, what's the proper balance? Okay, it doesn't mean sober in the sense of, you know, like we would say grave, you know, frowny, unhappy, you know. Um, and he's going to say this specifically to young men, and you go, what's the problem with young men? They don't take things seriously. You know, everything's a joke. Does that mean that they can't joke anymore? And the answer is, uh, yeah, they can, but there are certain formats and places where you ought to go, wait, this is not a time for that. Uh, there is a, a sobriety that is needed here, a, a solemnness, a seriousness, we might say. So it would be, in some sense, a serious life or a sober, balanced life uh, that we're talking about here. But in light of the, the Cretans, it sounds like as we get in here uh, that they may have a problem with being sober in the drinking sense. So kind of almost a play on the idea there. So uh, these two things, sound doctrine, sober living. Okay, let's uh, get into the letter here. And as we look at this, uh, you start off and the Apostle Paul opens up the letter. And even in the beginning of this letter, you find out that sound doctrine is important. First verse there, Paul, a servant of God, Apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, and hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began, but hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus mine own son after the common faith. So even in this, he's simply saying, okay, there are words that you have, and it's from a God who doesn't lie. I mean, that's the emphasis from the beginning. Here, here you've got this whole thing where God gives the, the, he gives the whole statement of really all of, you know, the history of mankind where God uh, finds sinful individuals and then he redeems them. But in this, you find this statement, God who does not lie, he's solid and you ought to be preaching what he has declared uh, because his word is sound foundation. It's, it's not something that's shaky, uh, that moves. It is solid. And Paul says, I'm preaching this. And so when he starts off, it's this, that Paul in his introduction is already pointing the fact of need for sound doctrine. It's stuff that does not change. Uh, and uh, it is something that you can find foundation on. And once you get into this, uh, you find that okay, here's that first reason that we said already that Titus is supposed to be left on Crete. They're supposed to go through the island and uh, appoint elders in every city uh, as I appointed thee. And uh, he goes through and in verse 6, you know, it sounds like what we have in, in 1 Timothy 3, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right unruly, a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. So here you go, okay, that he has a good life, 
Okay, here you choose individuals that by their testimony, they're blameless. Now, understand when that term blameless means this. It does not mean sinless. Okay? Because if that was a fact, you'd not have a pastor in any church. And you wouldn't be a candidate either for it. Um, but what it means is this. In, in the, the word here is that uh, the candidates had a set of qualifications that made them suitable in the sense of here you've got a person that the community's not going, eh, I don't know, that guy, you know, I, you know, shady business dealings way back here. You know, th- this type of thing, that they're, they're the person is not one that people are going, you know, immediately when they think of them, the first thing they think of is something bad that they can hold on to. Um, but ultimately, it's the doctrine at the end that's important. They live their life, but they also are able to preach sound doctrine. They know the word. And with this, you go, well, why is that the case? The reason these qualifications are important is due to the opposition the church would face from false teachers. These teachers had the characteristics of the Cretan culture. They were deceitful and selfish. Here you've got this passage that is actually one of the more unique passages in Scripture because Paul quotes somebody outside of Scripture to prove his point. Um, you see in verse uh, 10, there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, so there seems to be some Jews in the island that are stirring this up, whose mouths must be stopped to subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, speaking of the people from the island of Crete, even a prophet of their own said, the Cretans are always liar, evil beasts, and slow bellies. Now, this is a poet of them, and you're like, how do you come up with poetic lines that put those things together and, and all of that? But um, Paul goes, he's accurate. You know, he's a pagan man, but he's got the culture pinned down on what their problem is. And you go, what does it mean to be slow bellies? Uh, we might say that they're lazy gluttons. You know, they, they're eating food all the time, they don't do much of anything, and that's what they are. Uh, they are individuals who are evil beasts. Uh, you say, what do you mean by evil beasts? Well, they are ones who bring destruction to people. They destroy whole households. I mean, what do, the, what do wild beasts do? They tear things up. And the fact that you see there in verse number 12, they are always liars, So if they're always liars, do you not want to present them with something that's the word of God, who, as we start in verse 2, who cannot lie? You you, you wonder if your friends are telling the truth in the island of Crete, but let me give you someone who doesn't ever lie. Here's the God that is there. Um, And so you find that Paul goes, okay, here's what you do. You go and you preach. Uh, verse 14 sounds like 1 Timothy 1 again, not giving heed to Jewish fables, commandments of men. Remember the Jews had this fascination with going through genealogies and there's a name there and then they would make up stories about the name there even though they had nothing in Scripture to back it up. And they would have arguments over this in the synagogues, whether the story was true or accurate or not, even though it was made up stories. Um, verse 15, unto them that are pure, all things are pure. Unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure. 
Even their mind and conscience is defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. They don't meet the standard. And so the importance for Paul is that you know how to combat these teachers. And how do you know to combat these teachers? You know what God has to say. You know the accurate thing. If you know, and as they talk in the banking industry, they don't tell people how to figure out the counterfeits. They are familiar with the real deal. And if they're familiar with the real deal, uh, they're not going to be taken by the counterfeits. And so here you have, you know, the word sound doctrine, you're not going to be taken by it, nor the people that are following you. They're not going to be taken in by a counterfeit. So you go through it, then Titus kind of shifts because he's no longer talking about pastors, but he's talking about the congregation, the members of the congregation. And that by their lifestyle, they will exemplify to people around them sound doctrine. They got their life on solid footing and they live like they're based on solid ground. And as you look at this, this section, uh, we'll give you the the notes here at least to start off with. Paul gives ways uh, that believers could display the work of sound doctrine in their life. And the first group that he challenges, look at verse uh, number one, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Okay, here's what sound doctrine does. Verse two, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith and charity and patience. The aged women, likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, given to much wine, but they're teachers of good things. You say, well, what are the older women supposed to teach? Uh, the, teach? Well, you find that in verse 4, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Here it is again. You live lives so that sound doctrine is not blasphemed, that people look and go, okay, this is what sound doctrine does. Then you see this, verse 6, young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded. And so you have this changeover in the notes here. Uh, young men to be sober, balanced in all things. I mean, that's the only statement made to them. But if you, you know, you've got energy and everything else, but if you could just be balanced, that would be a testimony in the world. But then verse 7, this statement is made in all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. So what suddenly happened here? Uh, Paul does shift back to Titus. Okay, He kind of says, okay, you're going to be in the midst of them, but you ought to show yourself uh, this way. In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. You live your life so that you can't be blamed. Then verse number 9, exhort servants to be obedient unto their masters, to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining. Okay, that's a fancy word. Anybody know what purloining means? Anyone ever look it up? Stealing, yeah, basically. Yeah, stealing, dishonesty. Um, I remember that because 
we had Grace one time memorizing this for Bible quizzing one time, and was, you know, not purloining, and then you're like, what's purloining mean? I don't know, I just have to memorize the word, uh, and, uh, you know, it's a big word. Uh, I'm glad I've got it memorized, but uh, we went through that, but uh, not stealing, showing all good fidelity of faithfulness to the work that they may adorn or dress the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So here, once again, you're living your life so that when you say, here's what I believe, people aren't going, you act just like us. Why would we want this thing that you're teaching? The doctrine of God is dressed up, adorned by the way you live your life. So you have this, that even the slaves, to make known the change in their lives, what's gone on, that masters could have a belligerent servant and suddenly he's one who's a, who obeys, who is doing the work that he's supposed to be doing without being forced to. You know, what happened here? You know, that gives an opportunity to suddenly say, oh, well, here's what happened met one who died for me, to change me, uh, whose grace is sufficient. And that's all of a sudden what Paul goes right into, okay? Because what he's talking about, if you have a slave who's living a changed life, he's going to have an opportunity to say, there's a change in my life. Well, how does the change happen? Well, it's the grace that empowers sound doctrine, okay? It's not just knowing sound doctrine, it's something that God does behind the scenes with that doctrine in the life of an individual to change them. And this is where we get to the famous passage uh, that uh, most people have heard at one time or another in one way, shape, or form when it comes to the grace of God. Because verse 11 says this, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. See, you have what grace is doing in the past, the present, and the future you catch that you're saved in the past what it's presently doing and then you're looking for the blessed hope uh i didn't mark that down but that's what you do have going on here but as you look at the notes it's not just sound doctrine that leads to right living something's got to take place god's got to gift you with something grant you something the grace of god found in salvation is in jesus christ will change an individual You know, he's appeared to all men. Have everyone figured out who Jesus Christ is? No, but I will say this. It's available to whosoever will may come. A person that sees Christ, he's available to him. It's not exclusively Jewish. It's not exclusively Greek. It's none of these. It's for all. Okay, it's available to anyone. Grace will teach individuals to say no to ungodliness and worldly lust. When you have that statement, when it says this, that um, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, denying, in the Greek, it's the idea of saying no to this. Think about what happens when a person uh, suddenly gets saved and they've had a habit of life that they've been doing all of their life, and it's not a good habit, and suddenly they're able to say no to this. Is it because they suddenly really reformed their own person and really have worked this up? No, it's the grace of God. It's the grace of God and salvation that has changed and transformed that person. 
they've got the ability now to say no to certain things that had been a part of their life. The worldly lust, the idea, your old lifestyle. He's dealing with Cretans who are, as we said, evil, evil beasts, slow bellies, liars. What, can you say no to lying? I mean, it's part of their, their, their life, their language. That's how they live their life. Could, could, could a person suddenly not lie? And the answer is yes, by the grace of God. It could happen. And so you, some say that's the kind of the negative side of grace. It's not really negative. It's actually a great thing. But, you know, you can say no to something, but then you can also, on a positive side, say this, as you see in verse number 12, that we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world and you say so what's the idea of living soberly righteously and godly soberly has the idea myself i'm in balance okay i'm living right in myself my character who i am righteous is the idea of me and my dealings with other people i'm doing right by them in my dealings with them you can do this and grace also makes it possible for me to live godly. And you say, what does that mean? I have the ability to live in a right relationship. That's the term righteous that's in your notes there. I can live righteously towards God. I can be pleasing to God. And it's not because I have anything to please him. No, it's the grace of God working in me through Jesus Christ that then makes it so that I can live godly. And so... You have this. It teaches us to live righteousness and relationship with themselves, others, and God. The grace of God gives a believer the perspective to look forward to the Lord's return. Looking for that blessed hope, glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, before you were saved, were you really excited about the possibility of the Lord coming back? Nope. Don't want him to show up. I'm having too much fun. And if that happens, I know I'm in trouble. So I don't want to see the Lord come back. But what happens for a saved individual suddenly this, they they they're, you know, <laughs> even so come Lord Jesus. You know, that, that kind of statement in Revelation. Uh, Lord, uh, you can't come quick enough. Uh, that is what happens to a person. And uh, you say, well how, well, how does it happen? It's because of, I'm looking for this one who in verse 14 gave himself that he might redeem us from all iniquity, purify us a uh, peculiar people, zealous of good works. Uh, Jesus Christ, the one who's made all the difference. If Jesus Christ hadn't come into the world, there would have been no grace of God. It doesn't matter how much teaching you had that was sound if you didn't have Christ and the grace that he supplies in salvation on the cross, you'd be hopeless. And you're kind of like, hey, you know what? You could stop right there. I mean, this would be a good place for him to stop, and you're just kind of going, this is a nice place for him to stop. But he, he continues the letter, okay? And as he continues the letter, what he then does is that he says, okay, I want you to remind people that you have a testimony in this world, Okay? You still have to have relations with the world. You don't merely just go, okay, I've got my Christianity, and what I do is I hunker down and I don't share it. Okay? You know, I, I now become a hermit. 
Uh, this goes contrary, if you think that way, that goes contrary even to what the Lord said in uh, his um, discussion with his disciples and in the Lord's prayer that he could have taken them out of the world. But he didn't. You know why? Because they have work to do in the world. And so the Apostle Paul kind of shifts, and this is the shift that cha- happens there in uh, verse 1. Here are these individuals on the island of Crete, put them in mind to be subject to the principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Uh, that would be to government, okay? That you still have relation to government, that you give them the respect, honor that they're due for their position that they're in. Uh, to speak evil of no man, uh, to, not to be brawlers, which means you're fighting, you're always causing fights, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. And the Apostle Paul, and, and we'll give you these notes, uh, focuses chapter, moves in the world, relations of believers in the world, relations of government are still important. Unsaved people are definitely a concern for believers because they were once like those unsaved people. He says, okay, you, you, you're kind to all men. Why? Well, look at verse number three. For we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse loves and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing and regeneration and renewing the Holy Ghost, which he shed abundantly in us through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, these things I will that thou affirm constantly that they which believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. Okay, this is why we title this, A Testimony That Reflects Sound Doctrine, because you have people who are in this world that you used to live like. You used to be one of them. And for you to suddenly go, oh, I'm, I'm A, free. You know, hey, I'm saved. I can do whatever I want now. No. Because if you really understand what God's done for you and the grace that's been given to you, you're not going to live so cavalier a life that you just kind of go, I can live however I want. No, you're going to live in a way that unsaved people see this and go, that's really unusual. I expected someone to you know, fight with me over this statement, and that person didn't do it. Why is that? Well, because this person realizes their life is a testimony to a world and they are out in that world and they've got the opportunity to then declare to people sound words, things that they can plant their life on. And those words point to a person, which is the one they can plant their life on. But you live your life this way. You don't get to just kind of back out of the world and go, it, you know, I'm, I'm just going to separate completely from them. No, there, there is an element where you're in the world. It's okay. You know, we sometimes get in our mindset, well, you know, they're, they're not good people. We must separate from them. And you're like, how in the world are they ever going to get in contact with Christ if everyone backs away from them. And so for Paul telling Titus this, he's telling these people, you're saved, you still are responsible to your government, which, okay, Cretans tend to be rebellious type of individuals. (laughs) That was just their nature. It's always been their nature throughout history to rebel against anybody that's in control of their island. Um, That's their nature, so you're good to government. 
to other people, you live uh, a different way than what they live, your testimony. But there is one group that you separate from, okay, that you get away from. And it's found in verse number um, nine. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. They're empty. There's nothing sound about them. They're just like a bubble. A man that is an heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. What he says there is this. You've got these Jewish teachers, they're coming in and teaching not sound words, they're teaching empty stuff, they're teaching these fables, these myths, there's nothing sound about this, there's nothing good about this, they're wasting people's time. If people start pursuing this, they aren't going to get in sound doctrine, and what you do is you challenge them once or twice, and if they are not going to change... You make it obvious there's a separation. You make it clear. Because you don't want people to be confused. You don't want people to go, well, you know, that guy's in their church and, you know, he kind of teaches these things and cause confusion. No, there's a separation there. But with everybody else, there's a connection. Unsaved government, unsaved people in the world. But the one thing you separate from is these ones that are promoting a false teaching and claim to be religious teachers, but what they're doing is they're promoting something completely different, A, by their lives or by their doctrine. And so there's a clear separation of people who might claim to be teachers for Christ but are different. And so uh, you make this clear, a separation from them. And so that's the last challenge. And then there's just a few words at the end. This is what verse 12 is uh, dealing with, is Paul's giving some instructions. He says, when I, <clears throat> when I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, be diligent to come unto me, to Nicopolis, uh, Nicopolis, excuse me, uh, for I have determined there to winter, bring Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently that nothing be wanting unto them and let ours also learn to maintain good works uh, for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. All that are with me salute thee, greet them that love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. So basically what he's communicating is this, I'm going to send a replacement for you. Artemis, Tychicus, I'm not sure uh, in my plans right now exactly who, but I'm going to send one of those two with me. I want you to come and get here before winter to Nicopolis. You go, where is that at? Uh, it's just up the coast of Greece. Uh, the, the island of Crete is below Greece, long island, about 150 miles long, about 20 miles wide. Uh, it's below Greece, and what he says is, I want you to come up the, the western coast of Greece, stop in this town, uh, Nike, Nike, we have a company for that. That word just means victory, conquer. This is the city of conquerors. It was a city that was there that was set up because somebody defeated Mark Anthony and they set up a town there to go, you know, we won. Um, and uh, that's uh, why it's there. But Paul's wintering there and he says, come and show up there and bring people with you and remind them that wherever they go when they come with you that they're still living out good works. It doesn't matter if they leave the island of Crete that they still are Christians, that they ought to be living out a sound life. So <clears throat> you really, with the book of Titus, see the connection. Sound doctrine, sober living, these are the things that you must live out. Have sound teaching, sober living, living that's balanced, that proclaims the message of what's happened visibly, 
and audibly you've got the word to communicate to people um, and it's solid ground to be on. So uh, those two things in a world that likes to lie and deceive and cheat and everything else, uh, you need these things. Oh, 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 oh. Can't make up the last word. Winter. <laughs> yes, uh, winter is the, the right blank there. So, Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Lord, uh, give us a life that is in line with what you've said in your word. And uh, it would be difficult in ourselves, but uh, by your grace, we can do these things. And so may we live out uh, our life in the people that we deal with, family members, coworkers, uh, people we work for, uh, the world we live in, that uh, they would see a difference in life. And it's not just because uh, we've improved ourselves. No, it's because we found the one mentioned in the word, uh, one Jesus who's done everything to transform us. All we have to do is believe. And by the grace of God, everything will change. And so, Lord, we thank you for this book. May we live like this. May we think like this. In this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.